Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hey there, Darren. It's Wednesday, 9 September today, and it has been another crazy month of news. For Australia, it's fair to say that our bilateral relationship with China has once again overwhelmingly dominated discussions of Australian foreign policy. So we must yet again begin there, and we're going to start with the breaking news over just the past few days of the emergency departure of Australian journalists from the mainland. Related to the China question, we're also going to consider the Foreign Relations Bill that's been proposed by the federal government and that will likely have implications for Australian states and territories and others besides in making agreements with foreign nations, most obviously China. We're going to also discuss the retirement of the Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo and the legacy he leaves and where Japan fits into Australian foreign policy going forward. And finally, we can't finish today without discussing, at least for a moment, the current activities of our former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott. Okay, well, the big story and capping off a wild month of Australia-China relations did just break in the past 24, 36 hours, which is the emergency repatriation of the last two correspondents from Australian media outlets based in China. And this story actually overshadows what I had previously seen was the best place to begin the discussion, which was the 26th of August speech by the deputy head of the Chinese embassy in Canberra at the National Press Club. And so we're going to talk about both of these events to begin. But to give a a bit of a potted summary of the past month, if we go back to the beginning of August, about the 10th, I think it was, you had Foreign Minister Maurice Payne releasing a joint statement with her counterparts from the Five Eyes countries that were criticised the Hong Kong government's decision to disqualify candidates and postpone legislative council elections. And of course, we discussed this in passing with our discussion with Richard Maud in our last episode and how Five Eyes is becoming a vehicle for a lot of different types of cooperation. We also saw in this past month, Beijing announce anti-dumping investigations into Australian wine and a separate investigation into government subsidies of the wine industry. Canberra fully rejects that there is an illegal basis for these claims, but it is getting harder and harder to conclude, I think, that anything other than politics as being an important motivator of these actions, at least that's my read of things. It's worth noting now that all of the industries that were mentioned by the Chinese ambassador in his interview back in April have now begun to experience some kind of problem. At the end of August, we saw another Australian abattoir saw its beef exports being suspended, this time allegedly for chemical contamination. The news doesn't end there. The federal government blocked the acquisition by a Chinese company, which did have a state-owned company as its largest shareholder of a milk processing company that is currently in the hands of a Japanese outfit on the basis that the transaction was contrary to the national interest. A second Australian citizen was formally detained by the Chinese authorities. This time her name is Cheng Lei and she's a network TV anchor for the state broadcaster CGTN. And just yesterday we saw a statement from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying that Ms. Cheng was suspected of carrying out illegal activities endangering China's national security. 
and we have the proposed foreign affairs legislation that we'll discuss later. So just a lot of news, and I've tried to get through it all very quickly, but we have to begin with events from the past 48 hours. And this is the last two correspondents that were in China from Australian media, Bill Bertels of the ABC and Mike Smith of the Australian Financial Review being sort of rushed out of the country after a wild week that began with DFAT providing advice to the two of them that they should leave the country, which apparently had been triggered by the detention of Cheng Lei. Both had booked flights only to be visited the night before their departure after midnight by half a dozen or so security officials, each in different cities in Beijing and Shanghai, telling them that they were persons of interest in the Cheng case and were unable to leave the country. So both ended up then on Australian diplomatic premises with Bertels in Beijing and Smith in Shanghai, while Australian diplomats negotiated the terms of their departure from the country. And that ended up in them both agreeing to conduct interviews with Chinese authorities following assurances that they wouldn't be detained. And after what both described as sort of fairly andenine interviews that didn't really relate much to the Chung case, they were allowed to leave. So with the caveat that's not normal for us to be reacting in, in almost in real time to the news, Alan, what was your reaction to this quite incredible story? Well, I was surprised and shocked like everyone else. I think there's a particular sense of dislocation in the relationship when Australian media organisations are no longer allowed to have any reporters in a country of such importance to us. So you you just have to say that the clouds of uncertainty are getting darker and darker. Yes, well, I couldn't resist the sort of spy novel dimensions to this story. So the past 24 hours, I've been trying to piece together my own theory of what happened or a logic for what explains sort of the behaviour on the Chinese side. And look, in a system so opaque, any speculation is risky and likely to be proven wrong by the time this podcast airs, perhaps. But there are a couple of things that I find interesting, I guess, questions I have that our listeners can sort of mull over and see what happens into the future. The first was the nature of the DFAT warning itself. You can imagine a situation where if you have information that suggests an individual is in serious trouble, that a diplomat might show up at their apartment and say, go and get your passport. I've got a car. We're going to the airport now. Or maybe you're coming with me to the embassy now for your own protection. But that wasn't what happened. They got a warning that they should consider leaving, but the flights weren't booked for that exact moment. They were booked a few days in advance or a few days later. And in that time, you know, Bill Bertels had a party at his house with friends to help him pack up. And I, I just listened now to his interview on the ABC PM program. And he says the phrase, we were pretty short on detail on why they would make such a drastic decision. You know, so he didn't feel like DFAT had given him much information to justify such a quick departure and that he was disappointed. And the party had sort of descended, in his words, into a bit of a rowdy scene before the police showed up, casting a whole new light on the situation. So I'm interested in what was the nature of that precise advice and why was it sort of set at the tone that it was. The second point, though, is that Bertels and Smith aren't the only Australian journalists who are working in China. You've got correspondents from other international news organisations. Now, we don't know of any warnings given to them, and they all seem to still be in the country. So you do have the signalling out of Australian media organisations, leaving, of course, this situation where we don't have anyone there from an Aussie organisation for the first time since the 1970s, I think. 
Three, in relation to the Chung Lei detention, as I understand it, the type of detention that she is under did not require authorities to say anything publicly about why she was being held for as long as six months. However, after Bertels and Smith arrived back in Australia, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs released a statement that I quoted above describing that she had been detained for alleged offences against national security. They didn't have to do that. And in my knowledge of what's happened in the past, they do wait for a long time before giving any public information. So I'm wondering why they chose to do it at the time that they did. The MFA also said at the same time or at a similar time that the two journalists who came home had been interviewed lawfully and that as long as journalists obeyed the law, they had nothing to worry about. Again, something they didn't necessarily need to say, which to me is odd. And then finally, the fourth point is that overnight you have a Global Times story which claimed that Chinese journalists in Australia had been raided by law enforcement and had phones and computers seized. As of the time of this recording, the Australian authorities have said nothing, and so we have to wait and see, I suppose. But even if something does come to light in the next hours or days, it's still, to me, drawing a direct line from that to what happened in China seems not straightforward. Anyway, I'll finish with my my theorising and say that, of course, we probably may never know what happened, but I'm grateful for DFAT's work in helping keep them safe and, and glad they're home, but like you, very concerned at the current state of affairs. Now, Alan, I want to focus for a moment on that warning, come back to that warning given by DFAT to the two journalists. To me, it does seem like a big deal. The Australian government has information that suggests that a private citizen, albeit a journalist, is in danger. And you have to assume, or at least I do, that this information is at least partially based on intelligence sources. So you're making some of this information come to light by giving the warning, at least, even if it's not very much detail. Alan, this isn't a question about the mechanisms of this particular case, but is this something that happens where individuals do get warned? And, and what's the process behind it? Does the final call, for example, rest with the minister, just like a, a travel warning? Just before I get on to that, Darren, I did think that your private citizen, albeit a journalist, was a bit unfair to, to journalists. Okay. I was just thinking of, about someone who was more in the firing line of local authorities, you know, that I can imagine that journalists have the kind of job where you might be at more risk from the state yeah. than a private citizen. So anyway, be that as it may. Well, look, uh, certainly intelligence uh, broadly understood that is information flowing to the embassy would have been behind it, but probably in my view, not secret intelligence. All Australian missions overseas have consular responsibilities for Australian citizens. And I don't think there was anything particularly unusual about this warning, given the circumstances. Any Australian embassy with information relevant to the safety of journalists within the country would expect to pass it on in, in some way. I think you've known two reporters operating in war zones and other dangerous areas, Darren, and most of them will have had close interaction with and occasional warnings from our diplomats, so mm. nothing unusual there. Mm. There are some parallels with information we receive about terrorist threats. A high priority is always to find ways in which you can pass the information on. I don't think this would necessarily need the minister's final call, but she and her office, I'm absolutely certain, would have been kept informed every step of the way. And it cannot be that often in Australia's diplomatic history that an Australian diplomatic mission has you know, had to keep Australian citizens under its protection from 
local authorities, I assume on premises that are protected by diplomatic immunity of some sort. Alan, can you remember anything like this and who typically makes that decision? I'm assuming it to be the head of mission here, Ambassador Graham Fletcher. There have certainly been occasions like this in the past, but they are rare. In contrast to the issue of who would have given the warning to the, or made the decision to give the warning to the journalists, my assumption here is that the minister would have been asked to give approval to shelter the journalists on diplomatic premises. These, as, as you say, are regarded as Australian sovereign territory, uh, but I don't think there would have been much debate about it. And the embassy was also then clearly involved in negotiations with the Chinese authorities about how to get the two journalists out of the country. Look, it's worth noting here that in contrast to the position with American journalists, this decision to take our journalists out was made by the Australian side. Yes. Though obviously for very good reasons. Uh, just getting back to your own speculation, Darren, your spy novel account. <laughs> of what, it's just not clear to me whether this was a well-coordinated Chinese effort to ratchet up pressure on Australia or whether we were just seeing the brutal side of Chinese police operations all connected to a particular case. In some ways, it doesn't much matter because the impact on bilateral relations is terrible either way. Mm, mm. Uh, well, I, I'm going to save the what should we do next part of that discussion until the end of this whole China segment. So let's turn next to what was going to lead off our discussion, the speech delivered by the Chinese Deputy Head of Mission, Minister Wang Xining, on the 26th of August. So, Alan, a quick, easy question to start with. How unusual was this? One, to have a Chinese diplomat give a public speech. Two, it be the embassy's deputy. Three, at the National Press Club, of all places. Well, it was certainly pretty unusual for a Chinese diplomat, even in the recent past, to make themselves available to the media like this. In that regard, it was a welcome development and certainly a sign of greater confidence on the part of Chinese diplomacy. For any diplomat in any country standing up and delivering a speech in a foreign language to a bunch of sceptical journalists and then being prepared to answer questions without interpretation is a pretty big deal. Mm. And certainly the majority of Australian diplomats serving in non-English speaking countries would find it a, a challenge. Absolutely. I assume we were seeing the deputy rather than the ambassador for just that reason, but I really don't know. The speech and the Q&A that followed, not to mention the delightful trolling of the Minister Wang by the press club in serving <laughs> Aussie barley, beef and red wine, generated obviously a lot of discussion in Australia. There was reference to his comment that Australia was Brutus to China's Julius Caesar in regards to the COVID-19 inquiry call. There was his claim that China doesn't interfere in Australia's internal affairs and his accusing of Australia of whining about constitutional fragility and intellectual vulnerability. He dodged some questions about the inability of Australian ministers to get their counterparts on the phone and emphasised very much so that the hurt feelings of the Chinese people. And there's a quote here that I have, quote, commonalities at a human level outweigh the discrepancy in superstructure. And I want to come back to that in a moment, But that, because there's a lovely theory of international politics embedded in that statement. <laughs> but Alan, 
to you first, what were you expecting from the speech and, and what did you make of it? Well, to be honest, I wasn't expecting anything because I didn't know it was happening until I got a couple <laughs> of phone calls asking what I thought about it. And so I then sought out the speech text. And I have to say that it looked far more conciliatory to me than the provocative speech that some newspapers described it as the, the following day. I don't know what Australian journalists expected, but the role of diplomats is properly and things go terribly wrong when it doesn't happen, to articulate the views of their own government. So the idea that Mr Wang should somehow have distanced himself from known positions of his own government on COVID or other questions was mm. quite an odd fantasy, I think. Mm. I can't imagine any Australian diplomat surviving long after giving a speech that was at odds with the government's position. The responses during the Q&A period seemed to be the most heavily reported, and that's where you got the A2 Brute line and so on. But the meat was always in the text of the formal speech because that was the bit that would have been approved by his government. And I thought that represented a conciliatory move by the Chinese. Uh, so I, I imagine that the embassy would have been slightly surprised by the way it was received. But that in itself makes the experience of Bertels and Smith even more surprising. So what about you? Yes, I only read the transcript too, and I agree. To me, it, it seemed less to resemble the wolf warrior style of diplomacy that seems quite common in other parts of the world. Although the Australian delegation has never seemed to me to be as wolfish in their affect as their colleagues at other missions. If we could ignore everything else that happened just in the past month, let alone in the, in the past six months, to me on balance, it did signal a willingness, I think, maybe to turn a corner in their relationship. Though I know that people disagree both in the media and of course on Twitter on this and, and some read the speech very differently. But for me, other than the distinction that he drew between the human level and superstructure was the use of the metaphor of a married couple and the idea that successful interstate relationships, like successful marriages, are hard and take, quote, concerted determination and joint efforts. This kind of metaphor continues the theme of human agency versus structure. And I would like to believe that it signals an acknowledgement from the embassy, at least, let alone other parts of the Chinese system, the bilateral disagreements between our countries are less about structure and, and maybe ideology and more about just sort of more common conflicts of interest that happen from time to time. Still, the resolution of which is very difficult. But even if I'm correct, and that's what the embassy believes, even the Ministry of Foreign Affairs believes, as you said, Alan, it's unclear what the rest of the Chinese system feels about these things. And look, even if you do consider the press club speech to be a bright spot, it does risk being overwhelmed by the deluge of news that points us in the other direction. You've got the wine investigation. You've got the foreign investment decision by the Australian government. You've got the detention of the CGTV anchor, Chung Lei, and now this past 48 hours with the Australian journalists who have left. Yeah, of all of this other news from the past month, Alan, what was particularly notable to you? Well, these issues and problems just pile up, don't they? Mm. I thought it was telling that the Treasurer's decision to signal that he would turn down Chinese investment in the Lions Dairy case, despite there being no recommendation to, to that effect from the Foreign Investment Review Board, 
and in an area where it's very hard to see any national security implications was indeed something new. So mm. I, I read a hardening of the Australian mm. government's position into that. Well, that's a good way of beginning to zoom out because there have been a couple of interesting pieces in the past few weeks that have sought to characterise some kind of China doctrine from you know, the Morrison government. You know, Phil Curry of the Fin Review spoke to Morrison for his piece on the 31st of August. And Kirsty Needham did a lengthy overview of Australian strategy for Reuters on the 4th of September, and I'll link to both. The most important thing, I think, or the most interesting thing that jumped out to me from the Reuters piece was the way it began, characterising Australia as standing up to China. Needham said that there had been a dramatic shift in the paradigm through which the Morrison government is viewing China, that it's not a relationship that's just based on trade, but now, quote, Beijing poses a threat to Australia's democracy and national sovereignty. Now, in a written response to Needham, Morrison claimed that his government's approach had been consistent. So, Alan, what was your reaction to this piece and, and to what extent would you describe the government's approach in recent months and years as being consistent? I thought Kirsty Needham's report was really very useful, although it obviously wasn't completely comprehensive. There are a range of other actors involved in all of this, including think tanks like Aspie. And the Australian media itself, I think, has also played a role in it. So uh, whether it's from journalists or academics, more analysis of the sort that she's begun, I think, would be really useful. You and I have talked about this before. I don't think the consistency of Australian policy is at issue. The problem for me is the articulation of that policy and some of the elements of diplomacy around it. I don't have any quarrel with the policies we've adopted on 5G or foreign interference or Hong Kong. It's just that I think they could have been implemented without the collateral damage that we've experienced, or at least the degree of collateral damage that we've experienced. But obviously, it's not possible to prove that. And as Donald Trump would say, it is what it is. <laughs> what about you, Darren? What do and Michelle Obama would say that too. Yeah, look... <laughs> On that last point, Alan, from time to time, Australian political leaders and, and even backbenchers say things that the Chinese don't like. We aren't as disciplined as the Singapore system, for example, but we've discussed this in the past that still our system is at a net strength. And I think you take these bumps as given, or at least I do. To me, what's changed is not so much the policy direction, but it's just the volume and intensity of the conflicts of interest that have arisen. You know, as China's power has grown, its interests have obviously expanded. But to say that a decision like excluding Huawei or passing foreign interference legislation or even the inquiry call for COVID, to say that's a departure from consistency is to say or to imply that had the Australian government been presented with the same risks and threats and challenges of an equally sufficient magnitude sometime in the past, say 10 years ago, that the government of the day would have acted differently. And I'm not convinced that's true. I don't think we have, quote unquote, stood up because we weren't previously lying down. <laughs> What's changed is that whether we are standing or lying down is now a live issue. You can notice it. 
So to me, I, I do see consistency. It's just being revealed in, in many different dimensions and we're being reminded of it on a regular basis. I guess the next question then is to ask, regardless of consistency, what do we do about all this? Should the government's position change? Do the spy novel worthy events of the past week, for example, capping off what we've described as a depressing month, change anything, Alan? Oh, they don't change anything, I think, except that the benchmark for the relationship keep slipping lower and lower, certainly lower every time we seem to discuss it than <laughs> I would have thought the episode before. Look, I think there's a COVID dimension here. We're beginning to see, I reckon, tangible impacts on international relations from the absence of person-to-person -person meetings. It's so much easier to engineer a catch-up in the margins of an international conference than it is to go through the formality of putting in place a you know, telephone or a Zoom call. Mm. Any diplomat who's been around for a while will be able to give you examples of the way meetings between political leaders can facilitate changes and spark new insights. And I thought uh, I was thinking about this because a good example at a time similar to this, when we had a very parlous relationship with China, though not quite as parlous as this time around, was the meeting between John Howard and Jiang Zemin at the November 1996 APEC summit meeting in Manila. Howard wrote about it later in his memoirs and described it as about as important a meeting as I held with any foreign leader in the time I was prime minister. And during that meeting, Jung said to Howard in English, face-to-face -face is much better, isn't it? So we're missing all those sorts of opportunities in our relations with China and all around the world at present. And that does make it harder to see the way out of where we are. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Alan. I guess, as you say, the formality of even a Zoom phone call or equivalent you have to prepare so much for that. It sends a very strong signal about your willingness to talk, which the Chinese don't want to send right now. And it just, I guess it has higher political consequences attached to it than running into someone in a hallway of a hotel, maybe stepping off into a side, yeah, yeah, a side room for a quick meeting. I think I, my memory is of various West Wing episodes where this happens as well, where you get someone that you're not supposed to talk to in a room to chat with them. So, yeah, that makes complete sense. Well, my final point on the bilateral relationship, Alan, is simply to just observe that you know, I think we're both feeling very dizzy. I normally associate such a flurry of activity with the Trump White House. And at that I'm fine with that. I can actually feel like I have a pretty decent handle on US politics. And I remember when we asked DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson, about how one ought to learn about China, given the volume of material out there. But at the time, I remember thinking I was asking her about commentary and analysis, not about the sheer weight of the news itself. Do you have a particular strategy or method of taking all this information in? You know, any advice on how we should process it, given it's been such a hectic month? And indeed, how our friends in DFAT are processing it, actually? Oh, I can't even pretend to to take it all in on China itself. I just I read the reliable media, you know, Financial Times, New York Times, The Economist. If there's a big issue going on, I'll sometimes turn to the South China Morning Post. 
I try to keep across specialty China-focused news sites like Trivium, SubChina, and Sinicism, Bill Bishop's site, and to check in on podcasts like Seneca, which is excellent, and China Power from CSIS. On the Australian side of things, I read our media, of course, but they're no longer going to be reporting from China itself in that. Mm. The, or at least from Australian correspondence, I read the Chinese Nakan blog, I listen to the Little Red podcast, and of course follow works from academics and think tanks like Lowy, China Matters, and ACRI. DFAT, of course, has the additional rich and nutritious diet of Australian diplomatic reporting, analysis from ONI and intelligence, all filtered through a cadre of real China experts like the ambassador in Beijing, Graham Fletcher. So, you know, I'm absolutely confident (laughs) that they're better informed than both you and me. Well, I can say I certainly relied on the University of Technology Sydney's ACRI monthly summary of the bilateral relationship in preparing this episode. So thanks to Elena Collinson and, and James Lawrence for putting that together each month. You know, even if we think about the analysis side of things, I do think we are spoiled in Australia to have such a rich diversity of voices, each making a valuable contribution, albeit focusing on, on different things. So you know, I can read a report from ACRI with excellent detail on the bilateral economic relationship and some of the complexities there. And then I can, you know, the next minute pick up a report from ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, that talks about the connections between the PLA and university researchers. Or even just today, they published a report on that I haven't read yet on censorship on the TikTok and WeChat app platforms. So it just it doesn't strike me that there are many other countries that you get such a depth of inquiry, diversity of opinion and debate. And it surely must be that our China watching ecosystem is one of the strongest in the world, maybe second only to the United States. And we're sort of 15 times smaller than, than they are. So I think, it's, I think we're pretty spoiled. In any event, let's move on to this foreign affairs or foreign relations bill which if it becomes law, the bill would create a public register for the disclosure of all agreements made with foreign governments by state and territory governments here, local councils and public universities. The foreign minister would then have the power to terminate existing agreements if they were considered adverse to our foreign relations or inconsistent with Australian foreign policy. At the press conference announcing the bill, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne pointed out that there was currently no legislative requirement that states and territories consult properly with the Commonwealth on these types of arrangements. At that same press conference, Prime Minister Morrison offered the following justification, quote, we need to ensure that Australia, not just at the federal level, but across all of our governments, speaks with one voice acts in accordance with one plan, consistent with the national interest, as set out in Australia's foreign policy, as determined by the federal government. Alan, way back in episode eight of our podcast in November 2018, we talked about the state of Victoria's memorandum of understanding with the Chinese government on the Belt and Road Initiative. And I asked you whether Australian states needed their own specialised foreign services. And you said that you didn't think the risks were very great in that specific case. And though I didn't say so at the time, I fully agreed with you. You noted that the external affairs power has been used 
by the Commonwealth government in previous eras to pressure state governments on domestic issues, but that states have always had overseas interests going back to prior to federation. So on some level, the government disagrees with us, Alan, despite ministers having made positive noises about BRI in the past. And clearly this legislation has been building for a while. You don't just drop it overnight. And the world is a different place in September 2020 than it was in November 2018. So should we be updating our views, Alan? And what do you make of the government's justification for this bill? I was very surprised by this development. I didn't see it coming at all. But it does seem to fit into a pattern of increasing authoritarian and centralising moves by the government. I was surprised because there's simply no doubt about the Commonwealth's constitutional powers over external affairs and its capacity to prevail in any genuine conflict with the states. And as a historian of Australian foreign policy, I just can't recall any single issue in the past where state actions have been a problem for Australian foreign policy. They've certainly been an irritation to federal politicians and public <laughs> servants from time to time, but not a problem. So I'm, I'm surprised that a conservative government is trying something like this. The idea is that the foreign minister will be asked to determine whether actions by the states and universities are inconsistent with Australian national interests as though that's something fixed and obvious. Mm. In a democracy, parties fight over foreign policy and over the national interest. A Labor government would certainly see the need to address climate change, for example, as being in the national interest. The mark of a liberal democracy is that we don't all speak with one voice. And I noticed the former National Secretary of the AAA, Melissa Connie-Tala, now at Melbourne University, had an excellent piece on this in the conversation, which we can link to. So, look, I think we need to think this through very carefully. I don't see the problem that we're trying to, to solve. But what about you, Darren? Have you changed your mind on this? Well, I confess I I couldn't get myself that worked up about it, although hearing your response then is making me rethink. If forced to have a view, I think I originally would have said that the risks of subnational actors freelancing with these kinds of agreements probably outweigh the benefits. And to me, the benefits are not that obvious. I mean, why should Victorian companies get an advantage over counterparts from other states? And I I also really can't see much of a reason why the Chinese would want to do business only with one state over others, unless there was some other benefit. But I I confess on this, I'm, you know, I'm not much of a federalist. You know, you described some of these instincts as authoritarian, Alan, and that's a strong word and there may be some truth to that. But to me, the logic for the existence of states themselves, and this is getting long beyond, far beyond foreign policy, other than for competitive sport, obviously, like the Sheffield Shield, is far less compelling than it was 120-odd years ago. And I'm thinking in particular of the closed borders from COVID-19. The logic of that, to me, I can see why it's being done and the politics are clear, but from a policymaking perspective, it doesn't line up perfectly. And so I guess I, I take a bit of a different view, although I think, Alan, your historical perspective is is quite persuasive. And you make an excellent point that a future government from a different side of politics like Labor could use this kind of power to push a climate change agenda on states and other actors. And so the coalition... any other issue, yeah. Yes, and so the coalition may come to regret creating this power for themselves 
when someone else is actually wielding it. So I, I will think more about this. The one dimension that I can see benefiting or that we need more work on is transparency, not for the BRI deal, but for the, all the other deals that are done, especially by universities. I mean, hopefully it might be the case that the foreign minister won't end up needing to, to use the power to cancel or block agreements, but we retain the benefit of sunlight. Forcing people to disclose what's being done may be enough to ensure that Australian actors don't do things that, that put the country at a strategic disadvantage. But there's more thinking that I need to do about this, certainly. All right, getting towards the end now, let's talk about Japan. And late, late last month, the Japanese Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo, announced he was retiring due to long-standing health issues. And Abe is now Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister. He served for a year in 2006-07 and now has been Prime Minister since late December 2012. Now, he'll stay on until his successor is elected, which happens, I think, at a vote next week. If one had to try to summarise Abe's legacy as quickly as possible, I think you would say, one, you talk about the relative political stability inside Japan. You know, he's been prime minister for almost eight years, and there had been six PMs in the six years before he took over, including himself for one term. Two, only partial success at reforming Japan's economy using this Abenomics program that he was very uh, pushing very hard early on in his tenure. And three, where I want to focus on the foreign policy front, Abe's push to quote unquote normalize Japanese foreign and security policy. And so, Alan, uh, as our listeners know, you've been around for a while. Can you give us an assessment of Japan in the world under Abe? How has it been different to what came before? And, and what do you see as his enduring legacy? Oh, well, there's certainly been an Abe legacy, but whether it's an enduring legacy, we'll just have to wait and see. Mm. Inside Japan, his economic reforms have had a positive impact, even as you said, they, they haven't achieved all he wanted. Socially, more women have entered the workforce, and in the face of a good deal of uh, resistance, more foreign workers have taken up jobs. Now, both these changes uh, help address Japan's ageing demographics and so they help sustain its economy and, from Australia's point of view, therefore its influence in the region in, in the long run. So that's, that's a good thing. He's made some progress in rebalancing the authority of elected politicians against Japan's formidable bureaucracy. He took steps which no one dared take before, but which Australian Prime Ministers, you know, dating back to the 1960s had been urging to cut agricultural tariffs and quotas, despite the power within the LDP of farmers. He didn't achieve his desire to revise Japan's pacifist constitution, but he did make it easier to deploy the self-defence force overseas. He kept his own nationalist instincts reasonably in check, at least in his public appearances. And with the exception maybe of South Korea, he conducted what The Economist magazine I was reading the other day called vigorous and adroit diplomacy. Now, that's not a phrase we've heard very often about Japanese prime ministers <laughs> in the past. From Australia's point of view, he was, of course, instrumental in reviving the Trans-Pacific Partnership when the Americans backed out. So, it, look, it's a very substantial achievement. Yeah, my one reflection comes from fieldwork that I did in 2013, and I was interviewing some Japanese officials and companies about how 
political tensions with China were affecting the economic relationship, you know, what Australia is experiencing right now. And I remember one case of talking to some corporate guys from one of the large conglomerates about Abe's nationalism. And I asked them about the potential visits to the Yasukuni Shrine, which I think if you don't know, it's kind of like a war memorial and a very controversial place outside of Japan because it has some Class A war criminals interred there. I'd also note it's a very beautiful place to visit if you are in Tokyo. And so I was asking these guys how they thought about the risks to business posed by Abe potentially visiting the shrine. And their response was, well, we don't really think about it. We just hope he doesn't do it because of the reaction that it would create in China, causing problems for them. And this was a big deal back then, like these nationalist impulses that Abe clearly held. And he was and is an avowed nationalist. That made people concerned. He highly reveres his grandfather, who was imprisoned after World War II, as a, a Class A war crime suspect, although never charged, and actually would go on to become prime minister. But to me, you know, Abe's nationalism, it's interesting to see, certainly as it relates to China, really seems to have receded as an issue. Now, maybe that's because he has just not emphasised it. But I think it's also the case that as China has risen, the world has wanted Japan to act on the global stage with confidence and purpose, the kind that comes from nationalist impulses often. And so the rise of China plus the bombastic and counterproductive nationalism of Trump is what people are worrying about now, not Japan. Now, that could obviously get out of hand. And the, there is, as you say, Alan, one key exception to this, which is South Korea, which have, relations have been very poor. And, and you, one needs to acknowledge Abe's inflexibility and refusal to look forward, I think, and not back, which has contributed to the two sides being un unable to resolve their differences. But it's just fascinating now that everyone wants Japan to do more, whereas 10 years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. And it was all viewed through that nationalist lens. Anyway, quickly, Alan, what about Australia? We've had Abe himself has seemed to have very close personal relationships with Australian prime ministers. I'm particularly thinking of Tony Abbott, but you know, as we discussed a few months ago, Prime Minister Morrison had his virtual summit with Abe, and the relationship seems to be as strong as ever. You do you get the sense that these personal ties mattered much for the bilateral relationship? And do you think maybe even coming from the conservative side of politics helped build that rapport with our conservative leaders from Tony Abbott onwards? Human agency. Darren, here we are again, <laughs> human agency. I think this sort of relationship at head of government level does matter, and there's no doubt that although Japanese conservatism is different from its Australian counterpart, the sense of being on the same side of politics did help build a certain sense of you know, solidarity and rapport between Abe and Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison, and you could see that relationship in the really unusually warm and personal statements that the Australian leaders issued when he announced his retirement. I can remember few statements as sort of personal as the ones we got from, from Turnbull and Morrison regarding an Asian leader, certainly. Mm. Well, we're planning on talking more about Japan in a future episode, but can I ask for a quick take from you, Alan, now? What do we want to see from Japan and its leader over the next few years? Well, what we've wanted for a long time, we'll be hoping for a confident Japan with a leader, whoever it turns out to be, with the capacity to engage with the other countries of the Indo-Pacific. We want a Japan which will pay close attention to the region and will be willing, as Abe was with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
to take actions on its own account and not wait mm. for for the United States to lead for several decades now, and we talked about this last time too, on both sides of politics, Australia has been urging Japan to become a more normal power. So that's what we want. All right. Well, our final point, Alan, our final segment at your request, I raise former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's appointment to an unpaid role as trade advisor to the UK government's new board of trade which has been set up to help ministers and encourage firms to do more business abroad. In a statement, Abbott mentioned that he expected to play a role in facilitating new trade deals between the UK and other countries, including Australia. The move was criticised by the UK Labor's Shadow Trade Secretary, who said that Abbott should have been disqualified from the role, highlighting first his history of offensive statements towards women, LGBT people, minority groups. The list is so long and so despicable that I think it speaks to his character and his values, and I don't think that's a character we should have representing Britain around the world. And that's a quote from her. That was her first reason, and her second reason was his lack of experience in conducting UK trade negotiations, as well as his stances on climate change and workers' rights. Alan, your comment, please. Well, look, it's at my request, Darren, because I am frankly gobsmacked that this debate around this extraordinary decision by a former Australian Prime Minister to work for a foreign government on issues where our two countries' interests may well diverge has been framed as a sort of celebrity spat about whether Tony Abbott is a homophobe and misogynist. Far more important to me is the unedifying thought that any person who's held the highest political office in this country would want to go and work for another government. As you've noted several times now, thank you for this, <laughs> I have been around for a, for a long time, so long, in fact, that when I first began working in what was then the Department of External Affairs, it had no responsibility for relations with the UK. Australia House was managed by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet on the grounds that Britain wasn't foreign. Mm. And here we are, 50 years later, with a former Prime Minister who apparently believes the same thing. It's bizarre. Casey wouldn't have done it. Even Robert Menzies at least pretended that he was trying to mediate between London and Cairo when he got involved in the Suez crisis. So I find this difficult to accept. Fair enough, Alan. Okay, well, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us today? I've got two by twos. And I must say that I, cho I chose this partly so that I could say this. Two <laughs> <by two> <laughs> we need historians more than ever. And there are a few economic historians around at the moment as interesting as Adam Toos, who's a Brit formerly at Cambridge, now at Columbia. He's the author of Crashed, which is, I think, probably the most highly regarded history of the global financial crisis. So I recommend two excellent podcasts uh, worth listening to, a discussion about China and the geopolitics of the pandemic on Seneca and with Tyler Cowan on our financial past and future, what economic history can tell us about navigating the current crisis, and we'll link to them both. 
Great. I can second that wholeheartedly. I've listened to both episodes and they're fantastic. I have just a quick recommendation, which isn't a traditional one. It's a particular app. Alan, you've long said that you don't engage on social media and that's totally fair enough. But for me, Twitter in particular is essential to staying on top of the news. But obviously it can be a difficult place to navigate. And there is one particular app called Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L which essentially takes your Twitter feed and inside its own app just gives you the most tweeted stories by all the people that you follow over the previous 12 or 24 hours or in a particular point in time. So if you want to sort of cut out all of the commentary and the noise and the trolling and all the nastiness and just work out what people have been talking about in the past day, you can you never have to open the Twitter app itself. It just It's all there on Nuzzle. And indeed, you can actually see the tweets from the people you follow. And if they have appended a little commentary on the, on the article, you can see that without, again, needing to go down the rabbit hole. So it's a nice way. You know, I don't tend to go to the front pages of websites anymore. I tend to start with this. And, and, and that way, you know, you can choose to follow people who specialize in areas that are of interest to you. And if you have follow enough of them, they will, enough of them will tweet a given article and that's how it can come to your attention. So it's quite a useful way, a useful filter, I suppose. So that's Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing today, XC Chong for research support, and of course, Rory Senning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Thank you.